from mine. Let me uh, just go ahead and pray for our time this morning, and uh, we'll, we'll get right into things. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you uh, reveal yourself to us, that you give us life through your word, that you come to us specially, that you reveal truths by your spirit. We pray you would do that this hour. Open our eyes to see marvelous things in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're here uh, this morning to continue our Sunday school series on the Bible, on Scripture. And we're kind of clearing the ground in these first couple of weeks. We're clearing the ground for the more in-depth topics, or maybe the more hot, controversial topics we'll cover in weeks to come. But we look, uh, last week, we looked at what we call general or natural revelation. I suppose I should, I should give a little bit of a test. What is, what is general revelation? Revelation. What's natural? When we say that, what do we mean? Basically creation, absolutely. Yeah. One of the points we made is that God is always speaking, right? Always communicating to us something. Um, it's to all people. It's uh, all time, always. And uh, today we're going to move into the second type of revelation. We're going to actually get closer to our, to our uh, real topic here and talk about what the theologians call Special rev, special revelation. And in order to do so, um, I guess as a kind of a, a guiding text, let me ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 6. Let me just start by reading a little bit here. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, Paul says, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He goes on to say in verse 12, we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things really given us by God. Of course, we, we can continue on there to the end of the chapter, but the basic point is that God has given natural things, general things to everybody, but He has imparted Spiritual truth. He has imparted his spirit, not to everybody. And the world says there's a kind of wisdom. The world says there's a kind of wisdom that you can get if you're smart enough, or if you're clever enough, or if you watch this certain video that tells you the secrets of the world. I'm sure you've seen those videos, right? If you, uh, if you really believe that there was a second shooter on the grassy knoll, if you watch the video, they'll tell you that really the moon landing was fake. If you watch the video, they will demonstrate to you all these secret truths if only you have the, the right way of looking at them. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about a conspiracy theory. We're not speaking here about some sort of secrecy only available to those who are smart enough or those who have the insight or those who can pay. Rather, we're speaking here about something that God gives. God gives out of his kindness. He gives us himself. He gives us himself in a beautiful and special way. 
So let me let me just start here as we kind of open up here with 1 Corinthians 2 and this division between wisdom and wisdom. Let me go ahead and just move into why we need this. Why do we need this wisdom from the Spirit? Why do we need special revelation? Let me give you a couple of reasons here. First, we need this because nature, creation, is incomplete. Natural revelation is not complete. It's not enough. It's enough to condemn us. It's enough for us to know there is a God, there's a being out there. It's enough for us to know, as we mentioned last week, that we are responsible for our evil. It's enough for us to know those things, and yet it's, well, it's not enough for us to know salvation. It's not enough for us, uh, for us to know all that we need to know about God. Moreover, not only is it incomplete, we are actually sinful. We misread creation. We misread nature. How many times have you you've gone to the doctor and they give you their opinion, their diagnosis, and you say, I want a second opinion. You go to the second opinion, and they give you their diagnosis, and you say, I want a third opinion, right? We, we, we misread even what our bodies tell us. Your body might be telling you you have cancer. It might also be telling you you have, you know, indigestion. Is that a skin tag, or is that, you know, malignant? Who knows? We misread what even our own bodies tell us. We misread what people tell us, right? You, you, miss a, you miss a social cue, and what happens, right? What, what you thought was a joke wasn't a joke. They were deadly serious about it. We misread. We misread one another. We misread creation. We misread ourselves. We misread God. Calvin says, concluding in all this, so it happens that there is no real piety, there's no real religion in the world. And he goes on to say that what God does in his special revelation what God does is actually correct, like putting on glasses. Yeah, I usually wear glasses, not, not this morning. Uh, what God does is he, put on, he puts on corrective lenses. He gives, them, he gives you glasses that helps correct your bleary eyes, your dull eyes. And what are those corrective lenses? It's, it's the Word of God. He, he gives you um, the Scriptures to help you overcome, to help us overcome our fallen understanding. So the first thing we have here is that natural revelation is incomplete. The second, we misunderstand nature and ourselves. Third, what we have in special revelation is something new. I think this is vital for us to realize. We know it intuitively, but it's helpful for us to realize that God gives us something new about himself. He gives us something that we cannot get anywhere else. You think of uh, John 6. Remember what happens in John 6? You know, Christ has this great... uh, description of himself as the bread of life. The crowds are coming to him. They're all there. He has a huge congregation. And then what happens? They all leave. They all start to go away as he gets more and more in, into what, what it means that I am the bread of life. At the very end, we have that beautiful statement by Peter. When Christ, you know, is like, hey, are, are you, are you going to stay? You're going to go also? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Whom shall we go? I mean, that's right. That's special revelation in a, in a, in a nutshell. Um, and, and the reason that God does this, the reason that God gives specially of himself is that without it, we cannot know God's love. Without the Bible, what is particularly new here is the explanation that uh, God 
is love. Not that God is loving. Not that God's loving. God is loving, right? Of course. But not that God's loving. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God is love. That is that everything, every feeling you have of love in your life, every love you have for some person or some hobby, every love you have for some idea or, or something, every love you have for a friend or a spouse, that reflects the foundational love that is God, that God has, God is, God is love, we are told. Um, this is a beautiful idea that, that apart from, right, it, nature does not tell us that God's loving, right? What is it that Hobbes said? Not the tiger, the philosopher. Nature is, you know, nasty and brutish and short, red in tooth and claw. You look at the lion killing the animals, the strong killing the weak. That's not loving. That's just killing, surviving. And if you look at nature, you can know that's the way the world is. But only in the Bible, only in Scripture do we see something that is completely different than any other religion. You, you never hear Zeus saying, I'm love. No, Zeus does bad things. Zeus does really bad things. If you know your Greek myths, Zeus does not do good things. He does bad things, usually. Allah. Allah is not love. Right? Allah is mighty. Allah is above all things. Allah is even sovereign. Right? You are to submit to his will. That's Allah. Allah is not love. Not, not in this way. Not in this way. Um, and you think of the many, the many philosophies and religions that people look to today. You look to the, the stars. You look to astrology. The stars are not love. You know, you, you look to any of the number of uh, TV shows or uh, kind of fandoms that people have, things, hobbies that people get into. Your, um, <clears throat> your Camaro, right, your car is not love. No matter how much you refurbish your, you know, Mustang from the 60s or 50s, your Mustang will not love in the way that God loves, right? My dog may be loyal but she is not love, as much as it pains me to say that, right? Um, and any, any love that your friends have or your spouse has, well, you know how fickle that is, how unstable. You know how unstable your love is. So the point here, and I'm harping on this because I think it, it's so revolutionary. What separates the Bible from any other book, what separates Scripture from any other thing out there, is the unsurpassed grace and love we encounter in its pages. God is not to speak to you just to ramble. I do that. You know that, right? I speak and it, it rambles on. God does not just speak just to have said, look at me, I'm a big talker. But God communicates to you to show you that he is love, that you might begin, 1 Corinthians 2.9. We just read it. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That we might begin to know what is unknowable. The problem, friends, is that we live in a day where people think they've seen it all. We live in a day where people really assume and presume, I know what religion's about, you're here for money. Or I know what you Christians are about, you're here just to be hypocritical. Or I know what Christians are all about. I know, I know what this, I, I've read the Bible. If I had a nickel for every time somebody told me, oh, I've read the Bible. I read it once. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, people assume they've heard it all. This they have not heard. 
This is special revelation. This is why it's special. This is good news. We cannot find anywhere in his word. You cannot discover God's saving mercies by majority vote. No, no society, no, no, no vote has ever given the love of God just by coming up with it. There's no brain wave you can have. There's no deadlift you can do with your arms that will discover God's saving love. That is perhaps the core of the truth we, 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 we encounter when we come to the Bible. Of course, we learn more than that, don't we? We learn that God is triune. We learn that there is atonement made for our sin. We learn there's a remedy, as we'll see even this morning with Judah and Tamar. It's a remedy for our, our sin. But I suppose supremely we learn the love of God. Love of God. Um, let me ask a question here and then answer it, I suppose. Why does God give us written? Why is this written down? Why is it inscripturated, to use a fancy term? Why does he not just speak to us? I mean, he spoke, of course, in ages past. He spoke to Abraham. He gave him uh, dreams and visions and miracles and all these sort of things. Why does he not just do that with us, with every new generation? Why does he just like, keep giving us miracles and dreams and visions? Why does he write it down? Well, our old buddy Abraham Kuyper gives four good reasons why. I thought it'd be good to just bring up Kuyper. He's just popping up all over the place. But once you know him, you've been to see, he can, he can be helpful in a lot of different ways. Uh, the first reason, right? Why? why? Why is it written down? Why is it, as our confession says, committed to writing? Why does God choose to commit? Uh, the first thing, of course, is that it's, it's durable. I will tell you this, that our brains can actually remember a lot more than you think they can. We can memorize a lot more, and yet what happens nowadays when you get, you know, up in years, some of y'all know this very intimately, what happens is that memory fades. Memory can be hit hard. And so the durability of the written word ensures that memories will not fail, that writing collects thoughts from the ages. We have thousands of years in these words. So that answers, answers the problem of time. Second, it's a Catholic, that is a universal, writing. Kuiper says this answers the problem of geography. It's written for all people at all times. But Kuiper makes a really brilliant point here. He says also this answers the reality of John 3.16, that God loved the world. That God loved the, the entire world and not just one people group. He loved the world, and therefore he set it down in writing so that it, it, wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be the property just of that little tribe in the Middle East, but that will be given to all people. Third, it's fixed. This is a fixed revelation, which answers the problem of change. One of the most common arguments you hear uh, is the, against the Bible, is it's been corrupted. You've heard that before, I'm sure. If you've been, if you've been interacting with people from uh, Islam, particularly, but a lot of places these days, you know, you had this people, they were copying it, and they just corrupted it. Well, we'll get to that question in the weeks to come, but the very basic point to realize is it's a lot harder to corrupt writing than it is to corrupt speaking. Take more effort at, at, at the very minimal. Written word is set down, it's fixed. Your interpretation of it may vary, but the word does not vary. Fourth, pure. It's purity. 
This answers the, the question and the problem of sin. Kuiper makes a really good point here. He says, look, uh, if you had oral communication only, you would twist it. It'd be very easy to twist that to suit your purposes. You can just look at the news shows these days and see all the spin that folks make on all different sides of questions. People love to twist unwritten words to suit their own purposes. But God's Word has a special interest in preventing our rationalization, our corrupt spinning of it. And then there's maybe a fifth one, which I didn't put on your outline, but I'll just include. Um, This separates us from the need for priests. The Roman Catholics have an unwritten tradition. We'll discuss that as well in weeks to come. Uh, And their view of their unwritten capital T tradition is that you need a priestly order to kind of continue it and keep it alive. Of course, supremely the Pope. Kuiper says this, in, in Rome's view, there ever stood a man between us and God. That's why it's entirely natural that the Roman, that is the Catholic hierarchy, opposes rather than favors the spread of the printed Bible. Now, in, in our day, the, the papacy... Uh, has kind of done a little bit of switching on that. They want to promote a little bit of the Bible, but uh, still, I would argue that uh, there's a desire to put a man, a person between us and God. Um, writing doesn't do that. You have all you have Bibles. We have more Bibles today than we ever have had. And you can open them up. We, we don't, maybe, as much as we should. That's, that's, not, that's not the Bible's fault. That's our fault, right? But you have it. You can read it. You can check. You can check me out, you know, and, 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 and we should, right? That's what we're called to do. Um, yeah, the last thing I would say about the, the necessity of it is that this does not eliminate our need for creation. We still need natural revelation. Most obviously, these are words that use grammar. That grammar is not a special, secret, spiritual Christian language. It's Greek grammar, Hebrew grammar. In our case, we can read the English translation. There's English grammar to translate it. That's required. Um, as Herman Bobbing says, grace by which he means special revelation, perfects or completes nature. It does not bypass or obliterate nature. It's a very big concept. We'll come back to that in, uh, I hate to postpone everything, but we'll come back to that in in weeks to come. Any questions on the the, the need we have for special, for Scripture, the Bible, the need we have for the Bible? Or comments or pushback? All right, then. Let's, uh, let's kind of get into what, what actually makes it special. What makes special revelation actually special? We'll begin here with um, the audience. I think that's the first point I have here. Yes. We'll begin here with the audience of special revelation. The audience is not universal. It's a uh, not universal. It's a covenantal audience. It's a, uh, therefore, a limited audience. It's not a universal audience. It's not everybody across the universe. It's a limited audience. Let me uh, turn to Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and verse 8. I'll read this to you. This is Moses, of course. Moses on Mount Sinai. He says this, For what great nation is there that hath a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous 
as all this law that I set before you today. The point is that uh, Israel is unique. There's no nation like it. And they're not unique because they're great. They're unique because God's favored them. They're unique uh, in receiving the nearness of the Lord. If you know uh, Jews today, you'll know one of the things they really prize is their chosenness. There's even a show called The Chosen these days. Uh, And that brings up the point that the Jews consider themselves to be chosen. One of my professors in seminary said that only the Jews and the Presbyterians talk so much about chosenness. I think that's a good point. I think he's a little bit right there. The, the point I'm making is that uh, the, the Word of God, the Law of God, the, the, the Scriptures, the Gospel, they're, not, they're given to a limited audience. And they're given particularly in a covenantal key. They're given in a covenantal key. Before I hit that, though, I do have a question here. If it's to a limited, if it's just to God's people, if it's just to Israel and, and the church, what about those times when God speaks specially to non-Jews? Abimelech, we've seen in Genesis. Balaam and Balaam's donkey. That's not cre- Donkeys don't speak in creation normally. It's an unusual thing to have happen. How, 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 would, you, uh, how, how would we understand those exceptions to the rule? I've argued here that God specially reveals himself to his people. Balaam's not his people. How do we explain that? You, we have revealed from his word, from the very beginning, from the moment of the fall, that one day this, this revelation word will be to the entire world. So there are those who are represented. You have covenant covenant. That covenant mm-hmm. is going to have those who you know who are represented from all over the world. And I think you see that again you know, with the fall and the language right there. The whole world is going to be blessed through you. Yeah. Basically. I think that, that's a good argument. I hadn't considered that to this point, Greg. That's a good argument. You see kind of blips in the radar. Yeah. In the, I think yeah. that's, uh, again, the yeah. I think of Naaman, for example. You know, Washington. I mean, we, we can't, how many times does the Psalms bring yeah. in? You know, every, you know, they, they were supposed to be, you know, his people were supposed to shine and reveal him to the world. Yeah. As we do today, we fail. Yeah. You know, in, in that scope, sometimes I think you know, mm-hmm. times when these are signs of the future, the future fullness of the gospel given to all. I was actually going to say something else. I would say that for Balaam and Abimelech, at the very least, God specially reveals himself to them to protect his people, to protect Sarah and the promise on the one hand, and then to protect uh, Israel from Moab with, uh, with Balaam. But I think, that's a, I think both of those are, are fine arguments. Um, let's continue on then. 
Um, it, it, this word is not just a covenantal word. If you want to keep using a C, it's a corporate or a uh, communal word. That God's word is not delivered first and foremost to us as individuals. He addresses corporate people. Let me just give you one example of this. Uh, I think I mentioned it in the outline. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 through 4. The one who prophesies, New Testament prophecy, the one who prophesies, speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And the point here um, is that God reveals himself, even in the New Testament, not just for the individual, but for the edification of the entire body. And of course, you think of Isaiah, you think of Jeremiah, you think of the prophets in the Old Testament. They were not given a prophecy just for themselves. They were given a prophecy for Israel, for Judah. They were given a prophecy. Hosea does weird things. Ezekiel does strange actions so that he can portray what's going to happen to the whole people. Um, Now, let me give a caveat here. Of course, when God gives his word, it's suitable for you in every situation you find yourself. We're not saying here it's not not for individuals. Of course it's for individuals. But it doesn't come first to individuals. Or if it does come to them, it comes to them for the church, for the body, for the what we might call the covenant community here. Um, and, and this is, I suppose, where I was going to bring in what Greg already mentioned. Um, this is not only, God does not reveal himself only for the church. Sorry. God does not reveal himself to the church only for the church. God reveals himself to us as a body that we might be a light to the nations. Abraham was called to bring blessing to the whole earth. Uh, John 1, verse 9 Christ, the true light which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Think of the Great Commission, of course, among many other examples we have. Um, And then notably, uh, this also does not mean that it's a a private thing. It's a public. It's very important to realize this. Um, Christians sometimes get accused of being uh, esoteric, you know, or for the elite. Um, Only the best, the top 1%, of Christians or people can be Christians. No, there's something further from the truth. Um, Acts 26, 5 and 6, what does Paul say? Acts 26, when he's before Agrippa. He, he speaks about uh, the Jews having known for a long time, I stand on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. Right? That is, Paul knew the promise made by God not to one person simply, but to our fathers. And of course, he, he would continue on to talk about um, how these things are not done in a corner, in a dark place. This is verse 26. In other words, God reveals himself publicly. You can read the Bible anywhere you want to. It's given, it's public, it's free. It's not a private, secret thing. Um, Jesus Christ is as historical and public as anything else. Third, as I mentioned before, there's new content. God gives us more of himself. He gives a better picture of what we learn in creation. He reveals new truth about himself. This is a quote by Packer. I think it's a great quote. (coughs) 
general revelation lacks redemptive content. It indicates that God punishes sin, but not that he pardons it. It shows forgiveness is needed without showing it is possible. It preaches the law that the gospel it can condemn, but not save. Uh, Packer has many great quotes. That's one of them uh, for you. I've already kind of made that point, but it shows us just how special this word is, how much we ought to cherish it, that uh, we cannot achieve salvation apart from this word. You and I need it desperately and continually. Uh, and then finally, uh, the goal of it. What makes it special is that it's covenantal, it's communal, it has better content, and it has a different goal. Now, once if the goal is the same, both creation and the Bible have God's glory. As Greg already mentioned, God's glory is the goal. But creation glorifies God as creator, as sustainer, as the one who upholds the world, as the one who made the world. Only the Bible, only uh, the, the Scriptures glorify God as our Redeemer. And I've kind of hit on that point already heavily, so I don't want to belabor it. Um, before we head on to the, uh, the modes, the way God reveals Himself, especially, any questions? Comments, thoughts, cares. All right. <clears throat> How does God specially reveal himself? What are the modes that he uses? There have been three major ones that uh, folks talk about. They each appear throughout the Bible, and they're each equally valid. Three major modes. The first is uh, theophany or manifestation. God uh, manifest, reveals himself. We think of uh, the angel of God, often pictured in the Bible, coming to the patriarchs, coming to Joshua. And, and there's also debates about, well, is this Christ or is this, is this not Christ? Those are not significant. For, those debates are not important for our point. The point is, whether it's Christ or not, God, God is still revealing himself through manifestation. And that's from the patriarchs, you know, from Genesis to Samuel. Second big category is prophecy. This is from Samuel until the end of the OT of the Old Testament through the rest of the Old Testament. Again, predominate. I'm not saying that there isn't prophecy elsewhere. We're saying what is the what is the main way or the common way that God reveals himself? We see in Scripture that there are these kind of three uh, primary ways. And then thirdly, uh, what, what folks call inspiration, uh, or in the New Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit, um, well, inspiring men to, to write. And we'll, we'll discuss that uh, next time. The Spirit works with human authors without uh, overriding their will. And again, that, that dominates uh, in, in the New Testament. Not that he didn't, of course, inspire the authors uh, of the Old Testament as well. That we're asking what is kind of the, one of the major ways um, and then, of course, there's kind of a fourth category. There's one that is special, even in special terms, that kind of is in all of these, and that is Christ. That is um, the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't only really make a, resol- a, a revelation as much as Christ is the revelation of God. He's not simply a mode, right? The incarnation is not just one mode among many. Oh, it's okay to to have, uh, you know, a a theophany for a a little bit of time. It's okay to have prophecy. It's okay to have Jesus. No, the incarnation is special. It's unique. It's particularly 
uh, valuable. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Whereas the New Testament looks back, in a sense, to Christ, these look forward to Christ. Right? Absolutely. He is, he is the culmination uh, of all, all the modes. Um, yeah, and yet, I guess the last thing, I didn't, uh, didn't mention this. Well, well, we'll get to it now. We'll get to it in, in, in this last section in terms of the shape of Scripture. Um, any other questions? We'll move on to the shape. These are the modes, the ways God does it. What's the shape of the Bible? Does the Bible have a shape? You know, a lot of folks would say, well, look, it's just a bunch of books. It's crammed together, scattershot, machine gun approach. You know, it's randomly out there, um, just kind of thrown together. In fact, the, the liberal scholars for the last hundred years have just said, oh, it's a bunch of people mixing together things. And who knows what it all means? You know, they come up with hypotheses about political battles or whatever. Um, they sound very modern when they do so. All of their discussion. We don't believe that. We don't believe the Bible is a random scattershot, just God kind of burping out things or just randomly talking, just babbling out things. No, we believe God is actually intentional and purposeful and speaks and communicates to us as intellectual people who can read and understand. It has its own shape, its own structure, based on its own goal, and the goal is uh, the Jesus Christ himself, right? The goal is Jesus as Redeemer. Jesus as Lord, Jesus as, I mean, you can go on, of course. The goal in the shape of the Bible is not just Old Testament to New Testament, but it's really Jesus Christ. That's why I mentioned here Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. We covered it Sunday evenings a while ago, but um, let me just read it to you. The Bible tells us that it has a, it has a shape. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also he created the world. You can go on. There's, it's beautiful, of course. But um, we have a kind of twofold division here, right? Long ago, versus these last days. The end times, you might say. Some might say. Now, here's the question. You can look there, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. What is the difference between last days and long ago? What are some, there's a few differences in the text, or even as you just think about it. What is the difference between long ago, even think of the Old Testament, and last days? How does God reveal himself differently to us now than he did in long, long, long ago time. Through the Spirit? The personhood of Jesus? Actually, the Spirit is much more prominent, right? The person of Jesus, absolutely. Right, we have, can I say the incarnation, Nancy? Is that, or is that kind of what you're getting at? Right, we have the incarnation. Compare that to what they had back in the day. They had no incarnation. They had the theophany, perhaps. They did not have flesh and blood. 
Moreover, Hebrews tells us that they had prophets then. We have Christ now. Right? We have the radiance of God's glory right now. Um, contrary to what our Muslims might think, Jesus Christ is not just one prophet in a long string of prophets. He's not one more prophet. He is unique. He is unique. Um, second, Hebrews tells us there was a diversity in many, at many times in many ways. There was a diversity of ways that Revelation came back then, but now God has spoken to us literally by Son. The way he speaks to us now is by his son. And so that kind of gives us one of the basic ways the Bible is shaped. The Bible is shaped so that you might, as you read through it, you slowly come to see that Jesus Christ is God revealed to us today. That we have something. We'll get into this more when we, when we, when we discuss the gifts of the Spirit and prophecy in tongues, you have something more sure than tongues. You know that? You have something more sure than prophecy. You have Jesus Christ. You have something more. You have what the prophets long for. That's what Peter says. You have what the, the, the Old Testament saints would have loved to have, even a smidge of what we have today. Do you realize what we have? We have Jesus Christ given to us day in and day out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Um, that's what we have. Um, let's, let's kind of come to a, a sort of a close here. Um, when did God start revealing himself to us? When did God start giving us special revelation? If you had to guess, Greg. Moses. Okay. And by Moses, what do you mean? Do you mean like Mount Sinai or do you mean? Okay, good. So you're saying like Genesis then and all that? I, th I, th I thought you were. Excellent. Right? So uh, Moses, writing it down. All right? So does God start giving us special revelation when he created the world? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great, a great question in terms of how, how does language come about? You know, we're, we're made able to, to communicate with God, right? To hear from Him. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think um, Greg, you're on from here that, that God reveals Himself specially um, from the very get go. Yes, sir. So you were going to that category of people who 
Well, when did when did God start to reveal himself specially to, to humans? Maybe a better question. Surely it would be the opening of the Genesis narrative. That's a question, right? Was it chapter three or chapter one? Is it after the fall or is it are we to assume that God has be, has begun by creating not just naturally, but specially telling us something about his plan? of full uh, communion with him. Some would argue that God only starts to believe himself when we fall. And then he said, oh, there's going to be redemption. There's going to be salvation. But to kind of cut to the chase here because of our time, um, I would argue that we can go back to the Garden of Eden and see that God gives us a principle, a promise of eternal life in the very tree of life. The very fact that Adam is placed there and he is given this tree of life means that, as God says himself, he could eat of it one day and live forever. In other words, here's the law. This is why this question even matters. This is, it's not an academic question. It sounds like a really academic nerdy question. This is why it matters. Whatever we gain with Jesus is not just what the first Adam lost, the second Adam, right? Christ is called the second Adam, First Corinthians 15. Whatever you gain in Jesus Christ is not just a clean slate from sin. You gain what he had, what, what Adam could have had. That is, you gain the tree of life. That's why the tree of life is in the, is in the New Jerusalem. The tree of life in Revelation, at the very end, the great picture. It has such a prominence there. And the important thing is not the tree of life, but this picture. Um, the important thing is that salvation is not just taking away our sin. It's not even just giving us uh, righteousness to legally uh, 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 declare us perfect. It's not just the act of obedience of Christ. It's actually giving us in time to life with God. That's the point I want to make, I suppose, so I can conclude here, is that God began the Bible. He began showing Adam, and he shows us that he wants in time life for us, and he gives us that now in a baby taste. We'll sleep tonight, even as we come to the table in the evening service, where we get a taste of that beautiful life that God held out for Adam and that it's given, restored to us, renewed to us in Jesus Christ. So any last questions or comments as we uh, come to a close? I have more as I always do. But, uh, Mike, yes, sir. Could you briefly revisit Luke's fourth point about the revelation? I missed something about purity. About purity. Is that the one? Yes, sir. Yes. So the purity of the revelation, the written revelation, is that it, it answers our problem of sin. If, I, if God simply revealed himself um, orally, you know, speaking to me, and I said, hey, God, you know, brother, God has a word for you. He gave it to me. You've had that, you know, maybe I've had that, right? Uh, we would twist that. Um, but the beauty of a written word is that uh, it, can it be twisted? Of course, it, it can be twisted, but it's a lot more challenging when I can go to it and you can go to it. It's not just dependent upon, oh, God told me and he didn't tell you, sorry, you got to rely, you got to trust me. Right? We have the written word that we can compare. We can, as Paul would say, test the spirits. Does that, does that help some? Okay. Great question, Mike. Uh, Jim, why don't you go ahead and close us in prayer? That's all right.